I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Ralph ben Mergy joins me again. The acclaimed broadcaster has written a new book, I Thought I Was Dead, A Spiritual Memoir. The book opens as Mr. Ben Mergy on his way to uh, radio station Jazz FM, where he hosted the Morning Drive program, discovers he's not well and hours away from a deadly heart attack. Almost uh, in an instant, his life changes physically and spiritually. He narrates his health journey from stents being installed in his arteries to two bouts of cancer. He realizes how our society imposes stereotypes on aging and the elderly. And in the course of this book, he demonstrates the value in growing older and the benefit of having elders in our midst who have purpose. The book is also a look at Ralph's own remarkable life, the son of Moroccan immigrants, early years in music and in comedy, to his storied career on CBC Radio and Television. Today, he is an ordained spiritual director. I'll ask him about what he calls soul work, life, death, spirituality, as well as forgiveness. At Ralph Bemmergy is the Twitter handle. This new book is published by Woolsack and Wynn. Please welcome back to the Plant Online program, Ralph Bemmergy. Mr. Bemmergy, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Um, it, it's such an enjoyable book um, in, in so many parts because... Um, you, you give us a view onto your work over the years at the CBC and in, in private radio, as well as um, uh, j- just a, a view to the future, how to, how to look at life as, as one grows older. Um, but the book does open uh, as you, you face a health crisis. How old were you? Uh, well, I would have been, what was that, about 53, 54, I see. 55. A couple of things happened in that time. Yeah, and, and so the, it, what's fascinating as I'm reading the book is is um, you, you you were um, I don't know if you were newly married, but you had young kids then, right? Well, I I've had two marriages. I uh-huh. have uh, uh, two cohorts of children twenty years apart. So I had the two new kids mm-hmm. and the teenage kids uh, at the time, uh, or late teen kids. Uh, so that was a really interesting kind of like wow, okay. You know, and uh, what had happened is that I'd been diagnosed. First, I had angina, uh-huh. and uh, if you know anybody who's had angina, it's kind of like you feel like, oh, I'm, my chest hurts, and I'm kind of out of breath, and I'm not quite sure what's happening. Um, but it's also, you're very lucky if you get angina in a certain way, because if you don't get angina, you're the person who was walking down the street and had a sudden heart attack and just dropped dead. Mm. So it was a good early warning sign for me. I really was very lucky to do that. And then I just had these stents put in. And then a year later, I had a diagnosis of a squamous cell carcinoma in my nose. Um, and so within the span of two years, I really had to come to terms with mortality that you know up until then you can you know we all kind of wake up every day thinking we're not in the we're going to die club you know somebody else is going to die but we're not going to die (laughs) it's too much to think about uh and instead of that you really have to come to terms with this could happen at any time and i think the refreshing part of that is realizing that your life isn't a rehearsal like Mm. it's not that it's going to happen some other time you know, my dad was three days away from retirement and had a massive stroke and spent the next three years suffering 
from it and then dying. Mm-hmm. So he never even got to it. He literally had bags packed to go on a vacation, him and my mother, and he never had that vacation. So if you're waiting for life to happen some other time, don't wait. And yeah. I, uh, that was the gift of that, of those illnesses. Yeah, and that's the thing. A lot of us um, view aging in, in, uh, in this way, and, and we don't say foresee what will probably happen. Um, uh, when, when you talk about going, say, to a nursing home as a kid and not liking it, yeah. uh, visiting people in the sort, and, and um, thinking, you know, the thought was probably in, in, in the back of your mind, in the front of your mind, that, that this was not going to happen to you when you got older. I mean, I, I think that sometimes. But um, these things do happen, don't they? Well, you know, it's life. Uh, I, I run uh, occasionally uh, aging to saging workshops. Uh-huh. And I ask people to write their obituary. And what they often write is that they've lived to a very ripe old age, you know, 95, 100, and that they've died peacefully in their sleep with their loved ones around them. Um, And so I ask them after, okay, so 95, is your spouse alive? No. Are most of your friends alive? No. Almost all of them, if not all of them, are gone. Physically, is it easy to be 95? No, it's very hard. Well, then why is it that you think you want to be 95? Instead of whatever life we get, value it, mine it for, for its richness, uh, but also remember you live in a soci- this society which we don't have elders. You know, we have seniors. Yeah. And seniors get a discount at Shoppers Drug Mart. Uh, elders... If I, you know, if I came from an indigenous culture and you called me an elder, you'd think there was something spiritual about me. A senior shuffling down the hallway, you know, the aisle at the shoppers, mm-hmm. there's nothing spiritual about that. It's a commodity. Yeah. And, but we live in a society that is commodified. That's how we live, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, were you always interested, say, in the, in the big questions of life or, or the meaning of life, say? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I really couldn't help it. It was just sort of an inclination. So when I was a kid, I just I remember thinking to myself, "What do you mean I have to die? Mm-hmm. What is this? What kind of a cruel joke is this? I get this life, and then you're going to take it away from me." So I always thought about stuff like that. But I also grew up in a culture where, you know, in the Jewish uh, tradition, there's a lot of holidays to to mark the year mm-hmm. and to bring significance to different things during that year. So that helped me to keep my mind expansive as opposed to just having it devolve into the little details of, of a little life, you know? Yeah. yeah. What's also interesting as I read the book is that, you know, it's one thing to say practice religion or spirituality in one's life uh, privately, but, but to do it as you do sort of uh, publicly as an occupation, um, that, that's another thing altogether. Was, was that um, done out of um, necessity, say? I wouldn't say necessity. I think that I feel sometimes that there's very little that's sacred to people 
Uh, and so it's important to speak up. I don't, I'm not asking anyone to be religious, and that word itself is very loaded for yeah, people. And yeah. For a lot of people, it's supposed to be about being extreme and closed-minded and sure. tribal. Yeah. That's not how I see it. But I think it's more that I feel like it's important for us to, like in the Hindu culture here, you see somebody, you know, walking down Burrard and, How's it going, eh? In India, you go Namaste, which is I salute to God within you. Mm. Imagine if you walked by somebody on the way to a Starbucks and said, Hey, I salute to God within you. They'd be like, Hey, man, get off me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. You know? So it, it, it's. It's really a question of how do we perceive ourselves and how do we want to perceive others? How do we, can we connect to what's the spark in somebody else and the spark in ourselves is where we're coming from, from my heart to your heart, is a more meaningful conversation than the ones that we have from our ego shell to our ego shell. You know, how am I looking to you? How are you looking to me? What, what use are you to me? You know, that party you went to where somebody's kind of found out what you do for a living and started looking over your shoulder after you told them because they realized you weren't going to be of any use to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, you, you call it in the book soul work. And yeah. um, th this work that you've done over the years, which we, we uh, glean insights from in, in the course of reading your book, um, it, it's proven invaluable, hasn't it? I mean, it, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I, it seems to me that, that um, it's led to a more meaningful life. Well, I can only speak for me, obviously. Uh, I think that I, I just, you know, it's why I started the book with a test of my mortality is because I, I would just hate to think that I'd sort of wandered through life you know, caught up in the little details and, and really didn't appreciate the gift. Because to me, it's just incredible that this is happening, that this is a human lifespan in the flow of, you know, constant universal life. Like, I think a spiritual moment is looking at a picture of a, through a Hubble telescope of the universe. And, and realizing there are more, literally more stars than there are grains of sand on the earth. And just to try to accept, like, be humbled by that, like, have some humility. I think, you know, that's why people in the, who live on the coasts of Canada tend to, now they're starting to vote for green parties because they mm -hmm. see a planet. They're living on a planet. If you live in downtown Toronto, you're living on a built environment of pavement and no stars at night, like maybe four, and one of them is a jet, you know. Like, you can't connect in the same way. So for me, it's, it, you don't want to miss the opportunity to connect yourself to, to what's truly unbelievable. And that we're just dirtball people. We live in a little dirtball in the middle of nowhere in the universe. So when people talk about any ideas of, a god that they talk to that has a personal relationship with them. I don't relate to that at all. Like, I just don't see that. I, I just think that's so human-centered and so affected by humanism. You know, 
uh, Yuval Hariri a few years ago wrote a wonderful book called Homo Deus, uh, where he really talks about the rise of humanism over the last 300 years and how it's replaced religion. Mm. You know, how after Karl Marx we don't talk about the sacred and the God in things, we talk about the utility and the, and the sustainability in things. And it's just a different conversation, and I think because of that we're in a, we're in a bit of a existential crisis and we don't because we don't value our elders we don't have wisdom to share you know is if the ism is the, the, the one most acceptable today is ageism yeah, yeah. and we're all decrepit we're all incontinent we're all inappropriate nobody ever tells you their age if they're past 40 because it's just for some reason mortifying to say i'm 63 huh really you know, and it's just like, yeah, really, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you, um, who, who is God? But I guess the, the better question is, what is God? Well, it's a verb to me. It's not a noun. Yeah. You know, when I do spiritual counseling work with people, some, some still, often they'll start with, okay, look, I don't, I don't believe in God. Let's just start there. And then, you know, you get to ask them, okay, tell me what, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And it's usually the pediatric version of God that they were given as a kid, you know, a guy on a throne with a beard and a naughty and nice list. Santa Claus. <laughs> right. That's who it is. Yeah. But after that, it's so soaked in patriarchy and in uh, codified social behaviors and social contracts. And I get it, you know, you, these things were created to make sure that we stopped killing each other and stealing from each other and all that. I get it. Yeah. But... I see it as a verb, an action, that you and I talking right now is godding, that standing uh, in front of the Pacific Ocean and, and realizing the smallness of who we are in the face of this miracle is godding. It is a gaudy moment. And I, I think that um, if you see it as a verb, as an action, and that I think that the universe is a kind of a... Uh, a celestial entity, and I am a microscopic cell within the body of that universe, and my only job is either to be a cancerous cell or a healthy cell. That's it. It's not complicated. You want to be helpful and useful, or you want to be toxic and useless, right? Yeah. And, and, and uh, we try to do good in our daily lives. Um, and yeah. we, we all seem to fall short, though. Um, and well, so how do we know, deal with that part? Yeah, well, the thing is, we have been saturated in, in a media culture that values conflict and negativity. Um, so uh, Steven Pinker, you know, at one point wrote, um, 200 years ago, 90% of the people on this planet, 90%, or living in extreme poverty. Today, 9% live in extreme poverty. But you don't write that story. Mm -hmm. um, last year, you know, uh, how many people lived uh, because of the miracles of medicine? We don't write. So when I had cancer, the doctor said to me, look, this one isn't going to kill you. Right, it's got a very good success rate. Mm -hmm. It's very slow moving, and you, you're, you'll be okay. You're not going to have fun on the way to being okay, but you're going to be okay. And I said, 
He said, look, 50% of cancers are uh, cured, basically. You're healed. I said, well, how come you never hear about that? People think cancer is a death sentence. He said, well, you can't raise money by telling people that you can cure 50% of it. Mm. You've got to raise money by telling people this thing could kill you. It's like it's in your interest to give us some money to try, try to stop it from killing you. And it might kill you. But so might, uh, you know, not looking the right way when you're looking at your phone and a streetcar goes by and yeah. stuff happens, right? Yeah. Um, when um, you, you, you uh, explain to people the difference between spirituality and religion, um, I, I find that fascinating because we have equated both as the same thing. And, and I guess this, yeah. goes, this goes back to, to why people say eschew religion or, or even or, or turn their nose up to spirituality because they think it's the same thing. Well, also, so for me, spirituality is a relationship thing. My relationship to myself, to you, uh, and to the greater uh, uh, idea of the planet and the universe. So what is my relationship to it? Is it a sacred relationship or is it a profane relationship? And I need to cultivate that. So to cultivate that, I need a fitness program. If I want an abdominal six-pack, I don't just stare at a gym. I go to a gym. So if I want a spiritual life that has sustainable elements to it, sometimes within religions there are good fitness programs. You know, if every Friday night and Saturday is a Sabbath and you, you go from six days of doing to one day of being and you connect with people and you have them to dinner and share bread and conversation, you're enriching your spiritual life in a very uh, self-conscious way that is sustainable to a religious Jew the idea isn't, yeah, maybe I'll do Sabbath on Friday night. You have to do it. Yeah. You're compelled to do it. So sometimes it helps us to have a structure. Now, in this day and age, you can pick and choose. You can buffet your way if you want. You may find meditation, uh, yoga, whatever, embodied ways of connecting yourself to things help you to have a more spiritually based life. But... Right now, one of the biggest movements in, in our secular culture is people who are, say they are spiritual but not religious. And that's fine. It's just try to make sure that you do something, if, you think, if you're saying you have a spiritual life, that you can grow, that you can think about, that you make time and space for, and not just the occasional really nice walk. Just try to, you know, make connections to it. And don't forget, the other great thing about religion for a lot of people over the years has been community. Mm. It's not the prayer. Yeah. I, I've, I've talked to lots of people where I go, what are you thinking when you pray? And they say, I, I, just, I don't feel a thing. But I know the song and I like it. Yeah. But yeah. what I really like is after we're finished, we all sit together and eat and talk and catch up with each other. So it's community. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you're also quite candid in the book about... Um, uh, yourself and and um, uh, you talk about your career. A lot of people will know you from from your years in broadcasting. Um, the, the thing that struck me, I mean, it, you know, I grew up seeing you on midday and and it was fr Friday night, of course, and then Ben Murky live on on News News World. Then, um, all, all for all your work on TV at the CBC, I, and you write this in the book that, that radio was really what you wanted to do. And so, how did it end up that you? that you wound up on television, say? Well, 
Well, I don't. I guess because before I got into journalism, I was a stand-up comic. I was an actor. Um, I did those things. So the idea of being performance in that way in front of a camera was not like, wow, how do you do that? And it was really like midday was really much more not about the medium as much as it was about current affairs, that I, I made my way into the CBC in variety, in, you know, doing a, um, a show called Nightlines uh, and then a show called Primetime. And these were radio, the network radio shows. And mm-hmm. I loved doing them. But this was a chance to do current affairs. And the people, half the people who had the decision whether to hire me for this or not were just like, we don't want this guy on TV doing real journalistic hard interviews. You know, he comes from showbiz. He's gonna, he's gonna embarrass us. But the woman who hired me, uh, Suzanne Boyce, said, uh, I, "I want him on this show. I think he's perfect for the show." And they said, "Okay, but if he screws up, you're fired." And she said, "Okay, I'm, I'm hiring him anyway." So for me, it was about getting to do current affairs. But TV is a much different animal. Uh, I remember Barbara Frum would be doing a, she did an interview with Yasser Arafat many years ago, the Palestinian leader at the Uh time. That just was unbelievably good. Like, it was just fantastic. And the next day, the audience relations reports come out, and they complained about her shoulder pads and her sweater were off. Mm. And I just thought, oh, my God, you see on radio... And she came from radio. Yeah. Nobody would, they'd just be listening to you. <laughs> yeah. So TV was always a much uh, more uncomfortable place for me to be. And radio to me is a much more soulful, warmer, it's got a more feminine energy to it. And television is a much more um, passive medium where you just sit and take it. Like when you turn off a TV in a room, it sort of goes zoom. And you feel like, oh, wow, there's a room here because you've been in this kind of trance. There's a great book years ago called Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television by a former advertising guy, Jerry Mander. I love that book. It's about 30, 40 years old now. But it was really good. And it did mess with you, didn't it, the, 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 the time on television? Because as you write in the book, um, um, when you started to look different, say, when you grew a beard, or, or um, that, that business with your nose, um, it, um, some of the first thoughts you had were, were how were people going to look at me? And, and, and um, because you, you started to look different, um, it, it really did mess with you, didn't it? Of course, because uh, it wasn't just the TV. It was just like if you have something happen to you on your rib cage. No one will ever know because you've got your T-shirt or your shirt on. Yeah. But your face is your face. So people, it used to be when I walked down the street, people would recognize me and say hello. And, you know, that was a mixed blessing, but it was there. Uh, but now people who I knew, I'd known for years when I first had uh, my uh, reconstruction starting on my, on my nose because the cancer had lodged in there mm-hmm. uh, and uh, screwed it up. Um, I had people walk by me who I'd known for 10, 15 years who just would kind of look like, I think I know that guy. No, it's not him. 
And I had to sort of accept that I changed. You know, when I was 17, 18, I was heavy. I was a big guy. And I'd been overweight my whole childhood. So that was who I was. And then at 19, I lost all the weight. And all of a sudden, I looked like this other guy. And then, you know, I'm 55, and all of a sudden, I'm looking like this other guy. So to me, I remember the... Um, your throat and nose guy said, you know, you could get Botox injections to beef up your nose a bit uh, after he'd finished actually putting it back together nicely. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? Um, to me, this is kind of a Buddhist meditation on an impermanence that don't think that you are something and it's a solid thing and it never changes, <clears throat> that you'll always look a certain way. It's like when you start to get gray hairs and you think, you know, women dye their hair, and, and you know, men are, I, I say in the book, men are spending billions now on, you know, cosmetic surgeries because you're not supposed to get old. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to look different. And, and yet, you know, there's nothing I like more than a beautiful piece of wood furniture that has scars and has aged and has a story to tell and just looking at the surface of it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's who we are. And I think we should be celebrating those things. I think people should be able to leave a workplace uh, with dignity and, and have a circle of people who, who honor them for having worked together and having relationships as friends, not a pizza party at two in the afternoon. Yeah. You know, this is our life. Like we, we need we need to make more of it than we're making at this point because we've sort of been convinced that we're just here to show up, shut up, perform, and get out. And, and what are we supposed to do if we... There are people who are going to live to 80, to 85, to 90 now, quite no, a normal thing. Well, what are you supposed to do for 20 years after you retire? Mm-hmm. You're supposed to play golf? I don't like golf. Yeah. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But we have to repurpose ourselves, and we have to, you know, fight for the dignity that people deserve. Yeah, what I, li- what, what I like a great deal about your book is that, that um, there's a great deal of wisdom here and, and stuff that we need to know. Um, I'm wondering, um, a lot of this stuff, do you think your life would have been better had you known this stuff when you were younger, say? Well, I, I couldn't know this stuff when I was younger. That's the beauty of it, you know. I, I think you have to live your life, and I'm always amazed how long it takes me to understand or figure things out. I just think, wow, 65 and I just figured that out? Boy, <laughs> get with the program. So I think some things, it's like I asked a, a jazz singer on a podcast recently, I asked her, you know, could you have sung Here's to Life, uh, Shirley mm-hmm. Horn classic Here's to Life, yeah. uh, when you were 20? She said, well, I could have imitated but now I'm 70 years old, and when I get up on the stage and sing Here's to Life, I mean every single word of it. Yeah. Right? So sometimes you have to grow into your life. But that's not to say that there's not wisdom in all There's wisdom in three-year-olds. There's wisdom in 27-year-olds. It's a question of whether or not, you, you know, you honor that. Being a mentor, for instance, is not just, you know, telling people, you know, do this, do that. It, it, you learn from the mentee, from the person that you're trying to help. They'll give you insights you never had. So it's just being available, yeah. really. 
You um, talk about death in the book, and, and I just love the way you put it, that death itself doesn't necessarily, uh, you're not afraid of it, but you are preoccupied with um, all the things that you'll miss. And, you know, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I haven't seen the new James Bond movie yet. Um, I would hate to, after I put down the phone with you, put down the phone after talking to you, drop dead and not have been able to see that. <laughs> you know, or all the other books that I haven't read yet or the other things that, you know, that'll, that are coming out next year, say. Yeah, and for me, I've got four kids, and uh, my youngest now is 12. Uh-huh. And I just don't want to let them down. I mean, I, I don't really have a lot of control over that. But it's, you know, I remember one of my friends died of pancreatic cancer. And, uh, you know, I was asking him as he was going, you know, in the last few uh, times I talked to him, you know, how he was, what he's thinking about. And he just said, you know, I just, I, I'm okay with the fact that I'm going. It's just, I, I just, really feel that I, I, I'm going to miss these people so much. Because when it comes down to it, it's not all the other stuff. It's, it's who have you loved? Who has loved you? What do you want to be remembered for? What do you regret? Like, take that inventory now. Write it down so that you're not left at the last minute going, what was that? Like, there's always going to be something else you want to do. But it's really about love, about that relationship you've had that meant something to you. That's what people tell you when they're in hospice. They don't tell you, I wish I'd gone to the office for a couple more times. They <laughs> tell you, you know, who they loved and why they loved them. And, and you got to work at a life where people will love you, that when they come to your funeral, they'll actually be thinking, he was all right. Yeah. Uh, not, you know, he was okay. I'm going to miss him. Instead of, I wonder what's to eat. <laughs> what um, uh, What do you think will happen, say, uh, a generation from now? Do you think we'll be better off uh, uh, or, or find it easier, say, to talk about death? Because we're still finding it hard now. Not in this Western culture. I, I don't see death phobia going away mm. uh, at this point. I think it's... Um, and our worship of youth. I, I don't see where we've started to value those things, and because of that, I, I, I can't just ima- imagine that we're going to go in the other direction. Frankly, when you say the next generation, I'm much more worried that there isn't going to be any quality of life in the next generation, uh, because we're not taking, because we don't see this earth as sacred, we're raping this place. We're, we're tearing it uh, uh, limb from limb to feed what we want um, in the physical world. And uh, it's already in play. Like, we're already in deep trouble. And people just can't, because it's such a big thing, they can't put their arms around it and go, we better do something. Yeah. So I, I'm deeply worried about, about us. I, I spend a lot of my time doing green communications with people, and sometimes you just sit there and wonder, what is wrong with us? Why can't we just realize that if you're going to call this thing an emergency, I don't see the sirens going off. I don't see people taking the kind... Like Seth Klein wrote a good book uh, where he drew the parallel with World War II. Yeah, yeah. You know, 
Except the only thing I would say is in World War II, you thought you were going to get shot if, if these guys won. Yeah. In climate change, we keep thinking it's really not us that's going to, because we're, especially as North Americans, that we can insulate ourselves from it as long as possible. But this world is changing, and it's not changing climactically for the better. And we, we need to do something real because, you know, whether or not I, I, I'm good with death is going to be the least of our worries. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how involved were you in this last uh, federal election campaign, Ralph? Oh, I wasn't. I don't work for the uh, federal Green Party. I, I, I used to be, years ago, I was a, an advisor to Elizabeth May when she moved out to uh, Saanich. Uh-huh. Uh, and before that, we tried to help with media and policy. But I stopped working at the federal Green Party. The NDP is one party, uh, provincially and federally, together, like uh-huh. they're all the same party. Yeah. Greens, every province has its own party, and I work with the Green Party of Ontario, um, which is a, a great group of people in a very healthy culture and environment, so I'm very happy to be in it. Um, and I I think the federal one is a mess, an absolute yeah. mess, and has been for quite a while, so they got a lot of work to do, but, you know, it's important work, and I was... You know, I think we really, I don't want to keep hearing about everything except the climate from that yeah. party. I want to, I want to see them <laughs> giving people the, the blueprint for how the hell we're going to get out of this now. Indeed, indeed. The, the, one of the things that um, you talked about in the book that, that um, uh, I, I've been thinking about since I finished the book a, a great deal because it, it, it's a problem that I have, um, it, it's forgiveness. And... Um, I guess the, 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 rather than say couch it with, with everything I'm thinking about, I'll just, I'll just ask you, why, why is forgiveness so hard? I think because we think we lose something by doing it. That we're, we're just saying, oh, it's okay that you were horrible to me. Uh, and that they get away with something. The other person gets away with something because we're forgiving them. It's letting them off the hook, Right. But in reality, that's, that's actually not what you're doing. What you're, you can forgive somebody because you accept in yourself that you have your, your own weakness, that you have violated other people in your life, that you have not done the right thing when you could have. And then you just say, okay, well, they're human too. Um, and if there's somebody who is toxic to, my, to, my, to me, who doesn't have enough awareness to treat me well, I can forgive them. In other words, I can let them go. I don't have to phone them up and go, now let's go hang out and have dinner together. They may not be the kind of person who would be good for me to have dinner with, Mm -hmm. but I need to let them go. I need to send them love and hope that they have an okay life and get on with mine because revenge and grudges, that's just, you know, as I say in the book, it, it, it's a poison that we drink hoping to kill the other person. Mm. Because we're the ones walking around with this horrible, toxic idea. Every time we think of them, we just get angry. And, you know, how could they? And in, in, in Judaism, there's a, a prayer that you're supposed to do at night called the bedtime Shema. And in that prayer, you forgive anyone who hurt you unintentionally or intentionally. Now imagine that. Somebody who was out to really get you, to mm-hmm. hurt you, mm-hmm. and you forgive them. And you 
you hope that that they get a better life for themselves. You don't pity them. You don't pat them on the head. You just realize that they're, they're human, and many of us, for many periods of our life, can be very unskilled in how we handle our lives, and we can hurt people. Now, you should always try to ask forgiveness from people you've hurt, I think, and I write about that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I think that by holding on to this, you know, that guy's such an ass, I'm never talking to him, just let it go. You don't need to, you know, just wish them well. Send them some positive feelings, you know, in a meditation. You know, I sometimes do a, a love meditation with people where I just say, send beautiful, loving light to that person and let them go. And then when they come up, you can really feel for them, but you don't have to hate them anymore. Because, you know, you're not compelled to be around them. And it's not doing your soul any good to just fill yourself up with some toxins. What does it do? Does it change? You know, the classic psychotherapeutic question, how is it working for you? It makes you anything any better, you know? Yeah, I love the story that you tell in the book about um, how you ran into someone you went to school with years ago, and um, they tell you that you weren't really nice to them growing up. No. And uh, you didn't know this, and so this bothers you, and and every time you saw the guy, you'd apologize, and and he tells you he's forgiven you, (laughs) but you haven't forgiven yourself, and so how do you deal with that part of it? Well... It was a process, you know. I, I said it many, like three or four times in a row when I saw him, and he finally went, Ralph, it's fine. I just <laughs> wanted you to know. Yeah. Uh, and for me, that was okay. It is okay. But if he hadn't said that to me, I wouldn't have remembered that I used to not be very nice kid to a lot of kids because I was scared and I was uh, angry, and I was an immigrant, and I was moving from school to school, and, you know, I had a really good mouth on me, so I used it, uh, and that it really hurt some people. So, sometimes I have to forgive myself, and I do, but only after I've made a point of actually asking him for some forgiveness. Yeah. If I just forgiven myself and walked away, thought, you know, he embarrassed me. Why did he, you know, tell me that? Uh, that wouldn't have gotten anywhere. But I think for forgiveness, you have to drop your ego. And for most spiritual work, you have to drop your ego. Mm-hmm. You have to stop coming from a place of trying to protect this idea of who you are and just be open and available to the fact that you're just floating through the universe with all these people. I could talk all afternoon with you about this book. It, it, it's a, such a rich book with, with um, so many wonderful stories and so, so, so many marvelous insights. Um, I, I so appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me today. Congratulations on this book, Ralph, and good luck with it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. At Ralph Murgy is the uh, Twitter handle. The book is called I Thought I Was Dead, a spiritual memoir. It is published by Woolsack and Wynn. It's author Ralph Ben Murgy. Join me on the line from Hamilton, Ontario, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunder.